This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the Best of Fight Back from the week that was. We began the week learning about a disturbing story out of Brampton, where 11 residents of a long-term care home did not receive their medications as prescribed. After an internal investigation, Peel police got involved and later charged a nurse who worked at Grace Manor Long-Term Care Home with 11 counts of failing to provide the necessaries of life. The employee has also been dismissed. As if the situation in long-term care has not been bleak enough as a result of COVID-19 and its deadly damage. On Monday, while filling in for Libby Snymer, I was joined by our Zoomer squad to discuss Peter Mugridge, senior editor of Zoomer magazine, David Kravitz, chief membership officer at CARP and vice president at Zoomer Media, and Bill Van Gorder, chief operating officer and chief policy officer at CARP. How could this happen? What's the supervision that takes place? What's the record keeping? We understood that when medication is administered, uh, records are kept and somebody supervises those uh, records. How could it go on 11 uh, different times? You know, the, the, the good news, I guess, is that they, they, they caught uh, this, uh, uh, this indiscretion. The bad news uh, is how many other times is, is this common? We've been told by some people that it's not unusual for a nurse on their shift to find herself or himself get so busy they leave it to the next shift. Is that what's happening? Where's the supervision? Where's the uh, oversight? Where are these inspectors that we keep hearing about? It raises way more questions than just one about one nurse and, and some incidences. David Kravitz, what about you? What are your thoughts on this? Well, I, I share uh, Bill's concerns, on particularly in the fact that it's one individual and it's 11 uh, occasions. I suppose if there's any good news here, it was according to the news reports that it was reported by the other staff at the uh, home and it was investigated by the management and it was the management who reported it to the police. So there is some... Um, you know, local, you know, I, I guess supervision may be late, and I think they, they management also announced they're going to review all their procedures. I don't think this is the kind of incident uh, that necessarily can make it up all the way up the food chain to the ministry and their inspections because it seems to be very localized and was dealt with locally. But I think it may speak to, uh, and Bill alluded to this as well, is it overwork? Is it shortage of staff? I don't know what they're failing to provide. It, uh, the news report said charged. So is this under the criminal code? Because if it's a criminal investigation, then it's probably not a you know systemic thing in the whole system. Right. We do. We don't know at this point whether there was any intent or you know if the individual was tired, overworked. Peter, we don't know yet any of the details of of the allegations. Yeah, it's a developing story. And, um, you know, it will be interesting to hear her in court and, and hear, like, it, was she just a sort of a renegade nurse or, 
whether you know the the circumstances that led her to not providing the medication are common throughout nursing homes. So um, it, it's a developing story. It's not a great news story, especially with all the other bad news surrounding uh, long-term care homes and their failure to provide you know adequate care during the pandemic. It's it's a terrible add on to that but um we really have to wait to the court date to see to see uh, what she says bill do we have any more checks and balances in the system well uh we don't uh, we don't seem to have we know there's a huge shortage of uh nurses and uh, and they're they're the nurses that are on duty we're told are mainly there in a supervisory or, uh, or or a senior role, and do they have enough time to do their nursing uh, duties? We've doubted that for some time, that there's adequate uh, staffing able to look, look after uh, the necessities of, of life of the people that they're looking after. We hear about uh, not having enough to give the kind of daily care that we expect our loved ones to get in uh, long-term care. Now we're hearing an, an incident, as, as, as David and Peter have, have both said, that could well uh, be uh, overworked and, and a case of one, one nurse not having the time to do everything she's being asked for. Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer at CARP. David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President here at Zoomer Media. And Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine. Fight Back's Monday Zoomer Squad. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Patio dining has been back for more than a week, a beloved pastime for people across Ontario, especially here in Toronto. Outdoor dining is allowed under step one of the Roadmap to Reopening Plan, the first step to getting back to normal as COVID-19 daily case counts continue to decline. To get the perspective of the restaurateur, I was joined on Monday after the first weekend of patio dining by Chef Brooke Cavanaugh, owner of Season 6 Restaurant, and Damon Bodnar, owner of Hemingway's in Yorkville. Yeah, we opened 12.01 Friday morning. Uh, it, was, it was fantastic. It was, it was a, good little, um, a, a good little couple of hours to be open, uh, leading into a, into a crazy uh, high-demand weekend. So we were, uh, patrons were happy, staff were were very happy. I think they were smiling behind their masks. Um, but it, it, was, it was good to be back. So that was the overall atmosphere, was just jubilation on both sides. Yeah, you know what? Like, there, there, was, there was definitely a little bit of rust. Uh, and, uh, you know, starting off a, 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 a beautiful Friday was, was, was a challenge. But the public health... Uh, guidelines and, and the protocols that we have in place are very similar to this. They were at the end of last summer. So there was, there was a real comfort level for our staff and a real comfort level for our patrons. So, uh, you know, it, it went really well. And Brooke, what about you in season six? Well, my experience was maybe a bit unique. Uh, we actually just opened this location a month ago. Uh, we opened our first location on April 1st of last year, right at the beginning of the pandemic. And we had opened in a little 250-square-foot basement, uh, Dundas and Ossington. Uh, we opened a restaurant that was kind of ideally suited for the pandemic. It was a little takeaway and delivery place that we had conceived of 
prior to the pandemic, um, not necessarily because we didn't have ambitions to open a proper restaurant with seating one day, but just that's the size of a restaurant my wife and I could afford to mm-hmm. open. So mm-hmm. we ended up getting really lucky and uh, we did quite well during the first year and were able to take a, a much larger space with a liquor license and a patio. Uh, so we weren't just opening for the, for the first time in a year. We were opening the first time ever for the two of us, uh, a restaurant with seating and uh, with service. Luckily, we, we both worked for a long time in the industry, so we know what we're doing. And uh, we ended up having a great day. It started a, a little rocky, though. Uh, I was up at 7 a.m. to get to the Home Depot to buy the things we needed to finish off the bathrooms that we hadn't, right. uh, hadn't finished renovating. Right. Uh, and when we were told that we'd be able to open on Friday, Instead of Monday, we, we were in a rush to, to get things sorted. So I was buying you know, a paper towel rack and toilet paper holders and mirrors and sconces for the walls and the bathrooms and installing those at the same time as setting up the patio for the first time and preparing for our first day of very busy, uh, very busy day. We went from doing uh, you know, maybe $1,500 a day in sales uh, to you know, four times that amount on our first day. So it, uh, it was it was. Not easy. I, I was running around like a like a madman for 17 hours. In terms of the assistance that you've been given by the city of Toronto, by the province of Ontario, we've heard from various business organizations, independent business organizations, that it has not been adequate. Um, Brooke, I'll start with you. What What are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, it's it, you can always use more help, um, and I think squeaky wheel gets the grease. So. Uh, you know, I, I'm not going to, I'm going to just appreciate the, what we've got and being able to use these uh, great cap ATO patios has been huge for us. Um, so I'm just counting my blessings right now. And, and Damon, what, what about you uh, in terms of, of the help that the city of Toronto, the province of Ontario has um, given to restaurateurs? Yeah. So I think that the subsidies that were in place, they definitely kept a lot of businesses afloat. Did they, um, remove all losses that, 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 that restaurants and, and hospitality had? No, absolutely not. We ran at a loss. I, I have a place, the gym pub up on St. Clair, a smaller place. We ran at a loss month on month. Did it help? Absolutely. Uh, did it give us an opportunity to, to reopen on opening day? Yes. But are we carrying losses through all of this? Yes, we are. And, um, uh, what I do hope for is that these subsidies don't just get cut off now. Like um, we need to, we they, they need to at least run till say September, October, till the end of the, uh, to the start of the beginning of the fall. There's some uncertainty what the fall will bring. Um, so the subsidies are great, but they, they do need to remain in place. Damon Bodnar, owner of Hemingways in Yorkville, and Chef Brooke Cavanaugh, owner of Season 6 Restaurant. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, the Ford Tories fight back against third-party election advertising in a history-making move that's prompted a lot of criticism. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. 
Welcome back. It was an historic day at Queen's Park on Monday as the governing Ford PCs invoked the notwithstanding clause to pass election legislation, which limits how much third parties may spend on advertising in the year leading up to the next election, which is just under a year from now. While filling in for Libby Snymer on Tuesday, I was joined by our strategy panelists to discuss the move. John Capobianco is Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road. Karen Stintz is CEO of Variety Village. And Charles Souza is former Ontario Liberal Finance Minister. I began the conversation by asking John about the widespread criticism of the move, which many see as the premier protecting his own interests ahead of the next election. I don't think it's to protect the premier's interests in the, in the election. I, I would say this is to protect democracy. And, and you know, I, I, as, a, as a student of politics and somebody who watches it closely, like all of my, my fellow panelists, um, we have seen over the years the uh, the amount of of you know advertising and commercials that third parties have done and it's gotten increasingly uh, more expensive and and the, the budgets have become bigger and bigger and it's come to, uh, become a point where it overtakes elections and I think with now that we've got fixed election dates so that we're, in other words we people know when the next election is it is far easier uh, for these third party organizations to uh, to spend millions upon millions of dollars. Uh, and essentially what they're doing is they're attacking the, the conservatives. It's not as if they're speaking about a specific issue that they want or, um, uh, you know, a policy that they want to, they want to further. It is essentially not only attacking the leader. And if it was, if be it Tim Hudak when he was the leader of the party or John Tory or now Doug Ford, it is, it is billions of dollars being spent by unions who, who can get away with it to attack the conservative party. Uh, in any way that is to, 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 to further, obviously, the Liberals in getting in. And, and by and large, um, they are effectively another opposition to the government. And what the government is saying, it has said, is we just want to be able to have some limits and some caps when it comes to this and some timing so that you can do it at a time when it's leading up to the election, not you know two months or three months before an election leading up to and including the election campaign. So I don't blame the government for doing it. The notwithstanding clause is, is a constitutional right a charter right for, for provinces to invoke. Uh, and I think the, the government finally said enough's enough. We have to protect our democracy here. Charles, are there not organizations that would equally back Premier Ford as well leading up to the election? So has he effectively cut off any kind of advertising or limit advertising in support of his interests and in his government? Yeah, certainly. Ontario Proud, I think, was one of the largest uh, spenders in the last election. And this, to me, just speaks blatantly to the missense of priorities that exist, because there are so many other problems. And the timing of this particular uh, bill, obviously, is to limit uh, these third parties within the next year. He could have made those amendments earlier on in his uh, mandate when he did change uh, the, the limits and, and uh, the increase of do- donations limits for others. He, he cha- Bill 254 was one that he introduced earlier on in the mandate. He could have made those changes then, but he didn't. To your point, people are going to shrug it off saying, hey, that's politics, and uh, that's the calculus by which he's, he's measuring his, his situation. But that's unfortunate to be able to use the notwithstanding clause uh, that violates the charter for that purpose. That's the part that worries me most, is the use of this clause and the use of what he's doing for such a, a minor issue. So on the other hand, it's a major issue in that it's going to be used more readily, and I don't think that's, 
that's, that's, that's unfortunate. Uh, Karen, what about right. the voters? Is this, uh, you know, in terms of the strategy, doing this a year in advance, it will be forgotten come next spring? It will be forgotten. And it also, I mean, it really does cut the rug out from underneath the unions. And, you know, as, as a person just listening to those radio ads, I got to tell you, they were really starting to irritate me, irrespective of how I felt about the government's handling of certain things with respect to the pandemic. The, the, the ongoing board bashing of the teachers union was becoming a little tedious as for me as an individual. So I actually, on this one, I don't think that they're going to suffer the wrath of the public on, on, on using the notwithstanding clause on this measure, because I, I think most people don't, they're not really paying attention. They, they may have opinions. Those ads may or may not work. I don't even know, but it, but it was becoming a little over the top to the point where even I was turning off the radio because I didn't want to hear them anymore. And so for that, I think that, I think if there's going to be anyone, uh, if there's going to be, a, I guess, a pass, it, he will get a pass on this one. Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, Charles Souza, former Ontario Liberal Finance Minister, and John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road, Fight Back's Tuesday Strategy Panel. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. This has been a big week in the rollout of the COVID vaccine in Ontario. Eligibility for second doses expanded on Monday to allow AstraZeneca first recipients to move up their second shot from 12 weeks to eight, along with people who live in Delta hotspots who received their first vaccine on May 9th or before. But as the week began, many people complained they could not get an earlier appointment either when they called the pharmacy, where they got a first shot, or through the Ontario online portal. On Tuesday, I was joined to discuss these challenges by Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, family physician and founder of Prime Health Clinical Research, and Justin Bates, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association. Well, I think this has been an ongoing communications challenge, uh, and I would add to that that supply continues to uh, be much slower than what we need in terms of meeting all of the increase in demand for people that want uh, a shorter um, timeline now for their second dose. So we're doing everything we can to accommodate uh, people and help them navigate through this chaos because even uh, being involved in this every day, when I look at who's eligible where and when they can go. It's, it's very complex for people, and uh, pharmacists are answering a lot of questions about the policy changes and, of course, the uh, more clinical uh, questions around, you know, what, what should I do? Should I get an AstraZeneca as my second dose? Should I go with an mRNA? Uh, and what is the drop-off or trade-off of going from the optimal 12 to, to 8 weeks. So it's uh, there's a lot going on right now. Well, and what are you telling people when they ask you about that? Because that was the big change yesterday that AstraZeneca first recipients uh, can now book a second dose as early as 8 weeks rather than 12, and before that it was 16. Mm. Well, in terms of getting everyone in, it's really uh, challenging from a pharmacy perspective because we're still very much on a low supply side of mRNA vaccines. We're getting a lot more on the AstraZeneca side. So we know Moderna's coming in, and that will provide uh, more options and choice uh, through a pharmacy. But uh, until then, we have a limited amount of mRNA vaccines. I think it's all about informed consent, people understanding the risks and benefits um, and and understanding the science behind uh, mixing and, and where those recommendations are. 
if we look at the Delta variant, uh, certainly in the hotspots, but also elsewhere, having greater protection of being fully vaccinated brings a lot of benefits. And, and that even if there is a drop in efficacy and there are different data out there from the studies in Spain and the UK and Germany showing it at uh, eight weeks uh, when mixing, you know, I think people can be confident that's going to increase your protection, but also people may want to wait uh, for the optimal 12 weeks if mm-hmm. they're looking at an AstraZeneca to AstraZeneca vaccine. Dr. Iris, what about you? I have a mixed feeling about it. On the one hand, the world's data suggests it's better to get that second dose of AstraZeneca if that's what you've started with, and that remains the standard worldwide. It's interesting that if you if a person lives in the U.K., they're not given the choice. Mm-hmm. If you start with AstraZeneca, you stay with AstraZeneca. The benefits of the same vaccine are, of course, that we have long-term data and real-world data on it. The disadvantage of it is that it could be that mixing and matching expands the body's immune portfolio. So, in other words, instead of having only one type of antibody against the spike protein, you have one type developed by one vaccine and another type developed by the messenger RNA vaccine. So there's an advantage to mixing and matching. My advice to patients is get what's available when you can get it. What matters is that second dose. We know that second dose locks in long-term immunity. Justin Bates with the Ontario Pharmacists Association. Final word from you as people try to navigate the system for shot two. Yeah, I think uh, when you when you have a great volunteer service like Vaccine Hunters, it does underscore just how difficult and complex this has become, um, and it shouldn't be this hard. We, you know, I spent a lot of time working with people on uh, certainly uh, Twitter and other um, social media platforms to try to help them, and everyone's pitching in here that this is a public health crisis, and we want to make this as convenient and as accessible as possible. We can only do that if we engage more of the community providers like primary care pharmacy uh, as a long-term solution, as well as in the interim. Get the supply to where people need it, uh, and we're ready to do it. Justin Bates, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association, and Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, family physician and founder of Prime Health Clinical Research, both friends to Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. As an update to this story, it was announced by members of the National Advisory Committee on Immunization on Thursday that first-dose AstraZeneca recipients should get an mRNA vaccine, Pfizer or Moderna, for their second dose. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the past week. Judy in Milton phoned about her experience moving up her second COVID vaccine booking. My husband is 81 and um, we tried getting online to book his appointment and they didn't recognize his name. So I called the number that was given to us and uh, they called back very early the next morning and they said to him, well, can you come in tomorrow? Uh, and so he went in. Yes. He had his second shot, 
Um, and uh, he, he wasn't booked until the end of July. Oh, that's great. And what about you? I am getting mine on Friday. Oh, congratulations. So, yeah, Milton is very well organized. I'm really glad to see that. So, yes. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Marcia in Vaughan, who phoned about her mom's experience in not receiving her medication while in long-term care. Mom was in respite in one of the homes that um, the military was in uh, during COVID last year, and um, she was not administered her medication. For two days, mom was in there, and a friend went to visit her, and she was um, calling for help through the friend. The friend called us, and my sister and I darted down there. We were there within seven minutes, and we looked it up, and we uh, talked it over, and my sister and I said, okay, let's leave her there for another day. Uh, Saturday morning at 8 o'clock, I woke up in desperation and I called my sister. I said, we need to go and get mom. Mm -hmm. So we went and we were packing her clothes and we spoke with the head nurse. And we said, could could we have a list of the medication that she was administered because we we don't want to uh, remedicate her. Mm -hmm. She said, we don't have any medication for her. I said, what are you talking about? We gave you a list before she came in and none of her medication was administered. She declined. She went downhill. Um, we had to put her in a uh, nursing home. Uh, she was uh, there for a year and a half, and we lost her this September. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. Sure. She declined very, very rapidly, and we, we contested. We called the ministry. Uh, they went in. They said there was an inspection. Everything was done, but apparently nothing came through, and um, she declined. She declined very, very rapidly. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca, follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby, and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air and The Garden Show.